Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Oh, wow, dress listeners. So many of you have messaged us the last few weeks to inquire if we would be doing an episode on today's topic. The ever so recently opened exhibition at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston entitled Fashioned by Sargent, to which I replied to all of you coming soon. Stay tuned. And today, friends, the wait is over. Yes, we had some moves up our sleeves in terms of pacing upcoming episodes, which dovetailed together quite thematically. Last week, Dr. Elizabeth L. Block joined us to discuss her book, Dressing Up, The Women Who Influenced French Fashion, which examined lesser known French makers in the fashion industry as well as the tastemakers who were their clients during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And many of these women from France, Britain, America, and beyond who patronized the upper echelons of haute couture would have also been a part of the same social set who clamored to have their portraits painted by today's subject, John Singer Sargent. Famed in his day for his ability to forever freeze his sitters in time and paint for posterity, Sargent is also one of history's great portraitists of fashion. And while much has been written about his rare gift for capturing the flair and savoir-faire of his subjects, until now, Sargent's sometimes dictatorial role as their stylist has not been explored. Which is so fascinating. And this week, we investigate these matters further with Dr. Erica Herschler, the Kroll Senior Curator of American Paintings at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Dr. Herschler joins us for a two-part episode on the MFA Boston's exhibition, Fashioned by Sargent, which in collaboration with the Tate Britain, runs until January 15th, 2024, and includes, quote, 50 paintings by Sargent over a dozen period garments and accessories that shed new light on the relationship between fashion and this beloved artist's creative practice, end quote. Dr. Herschler is one of the world's foremost experts on the work of John Singer Sargent, and we are so thrilled that she joins us all this week. Erica, thank you so much for being here. Erica, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Yes. And thank you for joining us to speak about what is undoubtedly one of your favorite topics, (laughs) because this particular exhibition that we're going to discuss today is far from your first exploration of the work of John Singer Sargent. You are a dedicated scholar of his work. So who else better to tell us a little bit about him? But before we get to Sargent, I was hoping that maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background as an art historian and how you first came to study the work of Sargent. Well, when I started in art history, American art was much 
newer of a field than it is today. Today, it's gotten a lot of attention and it's taught so broadly at um, universities around the country. But when I started, there hadn't been very much attention paid to American art. It was considered a somewhat of a poor cousin to European mm-hmm. painting. But when it was studied, it was all about the artists who worked in the United States with sort of a nationalist agenda about the Hudson River School and the exploration of the West. The artists who were studied were the great landscapists like Church and Bierstadt. And when I started, I thought, gee, there's this whole interesting part of American art that has received some attention, but certainly there's room for more, which is the American artists who studied abroad. And in some mm-hmm. cases, who stayed abroad and made their careers abroad. And Sargent was one such case, obviously. Sargent was absolutely one such case. In fact, he was born in Italy. And while he came to the United States many times, he made his career really and his, his studio's central location was in Europe. Mm. Well, you know, I I have to admit my undergrad degree is in art history, and I can definitely identify a sergeant from across the museum gallery, but I don't know too much in-depth detail about his background or his formal training, and I'm sure that I am not alone and perhaps needing a little bit of refresher. So could we delve into a little bit more of his childhood and how he became a a painter, particularly known for his portraiture. Absolutely. So Sargent's family was both from New England and from Philadelphia. His, the Sargent name has long roots in New England, especially in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where Sargent's ancestors came from. His mother's family, the Singer family, notable in Philadelphia. His father was a physician. Uh, His mother has been described rather unkindly, I think, as a hypochondriac. (sighs) And they uh, left Philadelphia to travel abroad. And as one scholar has put it, they forgot to go home. (sighs) They, They traveled incessantly. And Sargent was born in Florence in 1856 and had his early art education and childhood um, in Italy, but his family traveled so much. He was also familiar with the great museums of Europe in France Mm -hmm. and Germany and elsewhere. Sargent's earliest education was in Florence at the academy there. It was a short stint because like most aspiring painters from around the world really at this point, um, he felt that the place one should get a good artistic education was in Paris. And he, his parents recognized his talent, and he and the whole family moved to Paris in 1874. And he uh, began to study in two different ways at two different places. He studied at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which is a very traditional academic training program in the arts. It was a very rigorous program that was sponsored by the French state, where you really learned the basics, starting with drawing after antique casts. You weren't really allowed to pick up a paintbrush until you had mastered drawing. At the same time, Sargent studied with the most stylish portrait painter in Paris, Carolus Durand, who was known for images of fashionable ladies. And 
Carolus took a sort of opposite approach to teaching art in that he encouraged his students to paint very directly on canvas without doing lots of preliminary sketches, but really to just apply paint very directly. So I I find those two streams of his education really critical in understanding Sargent because he's always looking both back toward the past, towards his admiration for works by Velasquez and Hals and Van Dyck on the one hand, and on the other hand, being very much of his moment and being aware of the modern age that he was a part of. Well, I'm so glad that you pointed out that Durant encouraged him to paint directly on the canvas because there is uh, this wonderful quote that is in the exhibition catalog. Um, Apparently one of his sitters noted about his particular session with Sargent. He's describing Sargent here. He says, quote, he is awfully nervous with the nervousness of tremendous strength and size rather than weakness. He stands off from his picture, looking you through and through, and then jumps at the canvas and whacks it left and right with his brush. (laughs) So he seems to be quite a physical painter. I'm sure that sitting for Sargent had to be quite the experience. And by all accounts, there are certain aspects of Sargent's life that are shrouded in a little bit of mystery. What do we actually know about Sargent the man and also his working relationship with his clients? So those are complicated questions, not all of which we're really able to answer, to be honest with Mm -hmm. you. Sargent was, for such a public figure, for somebody who was exhibiting publicly, who had a large circle of friends and, and a variety of different fields, who was out every night at some dinner party or another, he was actually very shy. Mm. And he didn't speak a lot about himself, and he didn't uh, enjoy speaking in public. So we don't have the kind of public history of his personal life that we do for some other artists. He was also not a record keeper, so we don't Mm. have account books and we don't have careful strategies of exhibition for him. It's been the scholars who have have pieced that together from his work and from the records of exhibitions. He was private individually. He is very much thought to have been homosexual, although the degree to which he was engaged with any singular person is a little bit unclear. He certainly was part of a number of social groups that were homosocial in that way. And I think it's pretty clear that his images of men are somewhat different in a way and that you you sense a spark there that you might not get with some of his images of women, although he was great friends with many, many women. He is also somebody who I think really is devoted to his work. He's Mm -hmm. working all the time. He was accused by people who didn't like his his paintings, mostly modernists in the early 20th century, that that he was, you know, just painting on holiday, that his images of Italy and figures in the Alps are just sort of vacation diaries. But in fact, Sargent was just always thinking about painting. 
And that was his main preoccupation. It was almost a, a worship of work. He's always thinking about his art. And what of his clients? Who who might have been a typical client of Sargent's at this time? And did they approach him? Did, did he come to them? How did that working relationship pan out? Sargent's clients varied tremendously. And whether or not they came to him or he went to them uh, also varies over the course of his entire career. One of the main ways that a painter can make a living, there there are two main ways an artist can earn a living. And most artists absolutely don't want to starve in a garret. They're looking for a way to be able to, you know, afford their rent and their food. So they either teach, which wasn't for Sargent, or they are portrait painters. So there are numerous clients who it is a business relationship. They come to him as his reputation becomes more and more prominent and his clientele becomes more um, prominent. More and more potential sitters come to him to order a portrait. But at the same time, all through his career, he approaches people. And some of his most dynamic, dramatic portraits are actually ones that he approached the sitter to paint as opposed to the other way around. Sometimes that sitter ended up with it. Other times uh, they did not. So that varies too. The most dramatic example, of course, Madame Gautreau, who Sargent approached to paint her portrait and then he ended up keeping it. It never went into her collection. And listeners, that painting that Erica is referring to is, of course, also known as Madame X. And we will get into Madame X, fear not, here in just a little bit. But the exhibition that is up right now at MFA Boston is, of course, fashioned by Sargent. It's not called Fashion and Sargent. It's called by. <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming that this is extremely intentional. It absolutely is. Sergeant and fashion or fashion and sergeant Im- implied uh, an equilibrium between those two things. And the point of this show is really to look at how sergeant manipulated fashion. He's given agency by that title. And in fact, he takes control of the paintings that he makes, always thinking about art making. And he doesn't always show fashions faithfully, if I can put it that way. Images do not always tell the truth, and they never did. You know, I found that so interesting that, you know, he's not necessarily always painting what is directly in front of him, or or even maybe he's inventing and styling the sitters himself. What was his role in in terms of the garments that his sitters were, were depicted in, his paintings? Sargent's role varies quite a bit, to tell you the truth, but there are multiple, multiple accounts in people's diaries of him being the person to select what somebody was wearing. My favorite example that's in the exhibition is a portrait of Eleonora Eislin. painting belongs to the National Gallery in Washington. She is wearing black. She looks quite formidable. And the account is that when Sargent came to her home in New York to negotiate the terms of the portrait and to talk about what size they wanted and all those sorts of things, that she had her maid bring down her six favorite worth gowns for him to choose among them to decide which one to use for the portrait sittings. And Sargent told her that 
he was going to paint her in what she happened to be wearing. Much to her dismay, perhaps? Perhaps much to her dismay. That may be why she looks rather formidable in her portrait. I'm not sure. But she was wearing a very elegant silk satin day dress, a black one with jet ornamentation. And Sargent loved to paint black on black. Exceptionally skilled at this. He was exceptionally skilled at depicting the fashions of the late 19th century with, you know, silk, satin, velvet. But this was actually something that in his day he was criticized for from time to time. There was the art critic Walter Sickert, who called his style of portraiture the chiffon and wiggle school. Um, And then D.H. Lawrence was maybe even a little bit more brutal. He once remarked that Sargent's works were nothing but yards and yards of satin from the most expensive shops, having some pretty head popped on top, Um, which is, of course, a little bit mean, perhaps. But but I'm curious as to your thoughts on Sargent's emphasis on and his rendering of these late 19th century fashions. How would you describe his style of painting when it comes to clothing? Well, first, let me say that the the critics that you're mentioning are all in the modernist school. And Sargent, by this point, is at the top of his career. He's almost given up painting portraits, to be honest with you. He's the painter of aristocrats at the time they're making those remarks. And so there's a certain um, conflict, I think, between somebody who by then is regarded as very traditional and people like Sickert and Lawrence, who are very much more modernist and uh, associated with more direct and modern schools of painting. So Sargent, as sort of the leading establishment, they think, painter, comes under fire from all of them. But I think what they're missing and what a lot of historians over the years have missed in Sargent's work is the abstract qualities of it. These reams of silk and satin become characters of their own. And it's all about, it's all about the paint, really. He's a magician at capturing the textural differences between a silk or a velvet and showing how when that fabric is draped, how the, how the folds look different if it's velvet than they do if they're satin. But for him, it's all about this magical way of making three dimensions of a dress into a flat surface that then sings with his brushwork, which when you get up close is very abstract. Yeah. There's a, there's like a certain contained energy in his brushstrokes. Maybe not as frenetic as Boldini, for instance, but it's definitely there. There's, there's, there's emotion in it. You can feel it. Absolutely. His brushstrokes are so gestural When you get up close to the paintings, you see how long and wide these strokes are, how they're very liquid kinds of paint that just sort of have this sensuous stream down the surface of the canvas. He enjoys that direct conversation, really, between cloth and paint. And of course, he's working on cloth, too. Let's not forget canvas is a cloth in and of itself. So there's this sort of rhyming between the image that he's creating and also what he's looking at. 
He's a very direct painter. And, you know, things that seem to be just sort of a mess of brushstrokes when you're up close, when you back away from the canvas, resolve into the most beautiful rendition of the way a silk skirt might fall, for example. Yeah. Well, this is actually, if you go to the exhibition, an experience that uh, the viewers can have for themselves. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. One of the most amazing things about the exhibition is that in addition to the portraits themselves, some of the garments that are depicted in the portraits are also on view. So you can see those brush strokes that we were just referring to. You can compare them to the actual garment. And I'm hoping that we can discuss a few of these examples. The first one, though, that I want to talk about, if we can, I don't think that the portrait and the dress are both in the exhibition. They are in the exhibition catalog, however. I thought that a really interesting example of Sargent's point of view and how he renders clothing is the portrait of Mrs. Abbott Lawrence Roch from 1903. This is a little bit later in his career, but there's also the comparison of the dress in the exhibition catalog too. How, How do those two compare in the physicality of the dress and also the depiction of the dress? I think that it's interesting to see these direct comparisons because you see what Sargent changes 
to be honest with you. The people don't survive, so we're not sure how closely he may have rendered their faces, whether they're made to be pretty, prettier than they really looked or less pretty than they really looked. Those were discussions um, underway when those paintings were exhibited. But with the, the surviving clothing, you can really see what he changed. He often simplifies. He doesn't, he's not a person to go to for a portrait if you want every detail of your lovely Worth or Kyle dress depicted. He will leave out some of the ornamentation. He will make things seem somewhat asymmetrical, even though the dress might not be asymmetrical. He drapes, he pins. So he's really thinking about what the portrait is going to look like as a painting rather than a completely faithful, and I use the word in quotes, photographic image of what the dress actually is. And that's part of his artistry, I think. And several of the writers actually of the exhibition catalog point out very specifically because Sargent did have such a hand in um, the styles of clothing that his sitters were depicted in that he very rarely paints patterns or pattern fabrics. Um, He really preferred monochrome garments for the most part. And I think that goes hand in hand with stripping out some of those, those details and those embellishments from what they were wearing in real life as well. Well, I think he's absolutely not the person for this faithful rendition of fashion, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. And that's one of the things that's so interesting because Sargent was always criticized for being too much of a, a servant to his wealthy clientele. And in fact, he's he's telling them what he wants to do with the painting. Sometimes it's by telling them what to wear, literally, as with Mrs. Island, but other times it's simply by manipulating their pose or the way the dress is shown. They come home with a sergeant. They don't come home necessarily with a perfect rendition of their clothing. He gives you the sparkle of the decoration of a dress, but not necessarily a description of the exact beading. He gives you the lushness and heaviness of a silk satin, but he doesn't give you every little seam and decoration. And he doesn't do pattern very often. Every once in a while, we have Mrs. Boyt with her polka dot dress as one of the exceptions to the rule. But basically, he enjoys monochrome because it's more of an artistic challenge to him. And not he's not a finicky painter. He's not someone who uses a small brush to paint little flowers on a dress. For example, the way the great British portraitist of the period, John Everett Millay, did, where you can really see the whole patterning or the the damask patterns of uh, woven into a dress. Sargent doesn't do it. I think the painting of Mrs. Roch is such an excellent example of that. So the dress itself is very silhouette-wise, very emblematic of the period. It has a kind of loose powder pigeoned bodice, a satin band around the waist, and then it has a sheer muslin or maybe even a chiffon overlay over like a pale blue satin. And the thing that's interesting when you look at the picture of the dress, the actual extant dress, and also the portrait, is that Sargent has chosen to really emphasize the sheerness 
of that overlay. And in some sort of way, it almost glamorizes the dress more than it actually is in person, which I thought that was really fascinating. He was very good at that. And, you know, I think that simplification really adds really adds that glamour to things. You don't get lost in the details. You are just taken with this great sensuous swath of material and the amazing way he had of rendering it on canvas. Well, some of Sargent's most famous paintings don't necessarily depict fashion proper, but stage costumes. So I'm hoping that you would tell us a little bit about the portrait of Carmen Sita from 1890. And it's accompanying ensemble, which is in the exhibition. Um, And then after that, of course, we have to talk about a slightly earlier portrait of the actress Ellen Terry as Lady Macbeth from 1889. That might be one of his most famous portraits. Um, And and that one was a little bit of a, a surprise for me to see the costume and the portrait next to each other. So could we talk about these two examples? Absolutely. I mean, my real take on Sargent as a portrait painter is that these portraits are performances and Sargent is the director of this performance. He costumes people, he poses people, and most of Sargent's portraits go out on public view before they go into a sitter's home. So they have a public life and it gives people the opportunity to talk about them as if they were a performance. So it's not really a surprise that he, as an art lover himself, as a lover of theater, a lover of dance, a lover of music, paints actual performers. So there are a number of portraits of, of artists, of actors, um, of dancers. We recall that his first great dance picture was very early in his career. It's El Haleo, which is a fabulous sort of freeze-like composition of a Spanish dancer that belongs to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. It's not about fashion, it's about dance, but that interest in Spanish things is very much ingrained in Sargent from his earliest education with Carolus, actually, who told everybody to ceaselessly study Velasquez. <laughs> so, so Carmen Sita was a star of the stage in the in the late 1880s and 90s. She performed in London and Paris and New York, sort of more in a in a sort of variety theater capacity. She was known for dancing the bolero, which is a rather balletic form of Spanish dance. And she wore wide, full skirts that when she twirled, which she did a lot, the skirt would sort of rise up a little bit. She was considered to be very sexy indeed. There's a wonderful Thomas Edison film of Carmen Sita dancing. So you can see what she really looked like. And you can see how she twirls and sort of leaps and the clothes that she's wearing respond to her movement. This portrait Sargent made of her was painted in New York in 1890. She danced privately in William Merritt Chase's studio a couple of times. Chase also paints her. And Sargent is captivated by her. He invites Mrs. Gardner to come see the performance. The interesting thing about the painting he's made is that Carmen Sita is standing still, which is not what you would expect of an image of dance. It's not clear whether it's before her performance 
or after her performance, or at one of those amazing moments in Spanish dance when the dancer just stops for a minute in this sort of very dramatic pause. In any case, Sargent shows her against a fairly inconspicuous brown background, and she stands out in this brilliant, deep, sunshine yellow satin outfit that is completely beaded and sequined and has things that dangle off of the um, sort of short jacket that it has. It has a gauze layer over the skirt that's completely embroidered with beads and sequins. And Sargent doesn't give the details of any of it. What he does is give this incredible sense of movement through the flickering little brush strokes that he uses to capture the shine of the sequence and the beads. So when you have a chance to see the original costume, which for reasons I have yet to figure out, Sargent kept. So either he arranged for the costume for Carmen Cita to pose in, or he never gave it back. It's not clear to me what, <laughs> what happened, but he kept the dress. He's not recording every decoration on that uh, costume, but instead giving you the flicker of it as it moves. So even while the woman is standing still, the painting has so much movement in it. It was uh, The painting was purchased for the French state, which was a great honor it now belongs to the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. Well, that begs the question, how did you all acquire some of these costumes? Well, that particular one uh, is still in the hands of a private collector. And, you know, we worked on this show for a number of years, tracing what happened to various costumes, whether they survived, whether they were in exhibitable condition, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part of the benefit of having worked on Sargent for so long. Well, the biggest surprise for me, as I've already mentioned, was the actual physical costume worn by Ellen Terry in Sargent's portrait of her portraying Lady Macbeth on stage. I don't know if I had seen this costume in person, I would have immediately recognized it from the portrait. Could you tell our listeners a little bit as to why that might be? Well, Sargent's portrait of Ellen Terry is one of his most dramatic portraits. It's a full length of Ellen Terry in one of her best-known roles, Lady Macbeth. And she is standing in this particular costume, which is called the beetle wing dress now. And she has her hands lifted over her head, holding a crown, as if Frankly, she's about to put it on her own head rather than on the head of her husband, for whom she has arranged the murder of her first husband, et cetera, et cetera, in this great Shakespearean tragedy. Um, Ellen Terry was the most famous Shakespearean actress of her day, and her performances were well attended. She was very famous. And this was a new production of Macbeth, that was held in London uh, um, under Henry Irving's production at the Lyceum Theatre in London. And Sargent was in the audience on opening night, and he was convinced that he absolutely had to paint Ellen Terry. 
And he wrote to Mrs. Gardner that he was so excited about this and the costumes were wonderful and it was all so magical. And as he put it, she has magenta hair. <laughs> and you can see that already he's totally taken with the stagecraft of it. And Sargent, all through his life, really has this attraction to the interesting, the uh, exotic, the sparkling, things that are a little bit out of the ordinary, let's just say. And he has to wait for Ellen Terry to allow him to paint her because she wants to make sure that the play is a success and not a flop. So once it becomes clear that, you know, this is the play of the season to see, she allows Sargent to paint this portrait, which is now at at Tate Britain, our co-organizers and partners for this Fashion by Sargent exhibition. So the Tate lent us this magnificent blue-green shimmery portrait of Ellen Terry, and her costume survives. There's an Ellen Terry collection that is part of the Uh, National Trust in the UK. Ellen Terry had a a beautiful summer cottage called Small Hive in Kent, one of those quintessential British half-timbered houses covered with pink roses. That's an Ellen Terry museum, as I said, now owned by the National Trust. And the collection includes many, many of Ellen Terry's original stage costumes, of which this one is the most famous. It was designed by Alice Cummins Carr, who was a significant designer in the aesthetic movement in Britain. And it was a design done in collaboration with Ellen Terry, who was very particular about her costumes, and made by Cummins Carr and Ada Nettleship, who was her frequent collaborator. So it's a really interesting dress, which we are thrilled to reunite for the first time with the painting since they were together in Sargent's studio. And just a little bit of description here for our listeners. The dress has both, of course, this aesthetic movement aspect to it, but also hearkening back and referencing dress of the Middle Ages. So it has those very, very long draped sleeves that reach down to the floor. The dress itself is kind of clinging to the figure, the bodice actually has iridescent beetle wings covering the bodice, which is why, of course, you referenced it as um, the beetle wing dress. But then over this entire dress, she's wearing a cloak. And I think that the cloak is very interesting because in the portrait, we don't really see much of the cloak. We just see it as a shape, as a silhouette. But the cloak itself in person is also magenta. It seems to be magenta velvet, and then it has kind of tiger motifs all over it. Or are they dragon? It's sort of stylized lions. Yes. But the color of the dress in person and the color of the painting were very different. Yes? Yes. I've been sort of wondering about that. There could be several different reasons for it. The dress um, is actually crocheted from green wool and the green wool has a thread running all the way alongside it of blue tinsel and which is a little bit hard to see uh, even when you're in front of the dress itself so those two threads are crocheted together the whole impression is a little bit like chain mail and then the whole thing is dotted with these iridescent blue green beetle wings 
So one of the questions that I've been asking myself is what did that look like in stage light of the time? And I actually don't know the answer to that question. Did that make the blue tinsel show up a little bit more than it does in gallery lighting today? But basically the dress looks very green and in Sargent's painting, it looks very blue. We do know, we do know that the British Pre-Raphaelite painter Edward Byrne-Jones came to Sargent's studio while this painting was being made and suggested to Sargent that it needed a little bit more blue. Oh, interesting. Dr. Herschler, thank you so much for your insights into the sartorial styling seen in John Singer Sargent's work. And as fashion historians, we often rely on the art historical record to provide us with imagery of clothing and dress prior to the 20th century, especially. And of course, portrait photography certainly existed during Sargent's era. His canvases, however, really capture the spirit of fashions of his age in a way that photography, which in many ways was in its infancy, especially fashion photography, rarely could. And as we alluded to at the top of this episode, we are not finished chatting with Erica yet. She's going to rejoin us on Thursday to dish the scandal surrounding Sargent's most famous painting, Madam X. We also delve into Sargent's depictions of queer dandyism and some of his portraits of male style icons of the day. But until then, dress listeners, may you consider how your clothing choices will be recorded for your descendants next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at hello at dressedhistory.com. That is our new website where you can find more information on our upcoming fashion history tours, classes, and anything else we might have up our sleeves in the coming months. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. And if you would like to find the Instagram content specifically related to today's episode, you can search the hashtag dressed 330. That's hashtag dressed and the numbers 330. Remember, for just $3 a month, you can subscribe to the exclusive content version of the show and skip the ads. You can check out the link in our show notes or the button in our Instagram link tree to sign up. Also, if you would like to purchase a copy of the exhibition catalog we have been discussing today, you can head on over to bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash dress to purchase it. And there you'll find more than 100 of our favorite fashion history titles and purchase them from an independent bookseller. You can also find a link to that in our show notes. As always, thank you for listening and tuning in. Make sure you join us Thursday for more with Dr. Herschler. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dress Media.